it is a reflexive impulse to say that we are different. We want to maintain our Britishness. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor in New York City today, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey in California, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Also with us in D.C. is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Finally, we have Ben Parker, executive editor for the web at Foreign Policy, also in D.C. today. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio high above DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So here's my question. Turn to you first, Ben. Brexit. That sounds like a breakfast cereal. <laughs> okay. That, okay, that's one good answer. Ben, do you agree it's a breakfast cereal? Uh, it's sort of like a Weetabix alternative, I think. <laughs> I always think it. it's more like Fruit Loops. Tastes good, but not actually good for you. <laughs> okay. Corey, you want to destroy this metaphor by beating it <laughs> to death? or? <laughs> I am not going to offer a breakfast cereal alternative, but I am going to point out that uh, the betting line is now something like 70% of uh, confidence that Britons, that B-R-I-T-O-N-S, will vote in favor of remaining in the EU. And I think that's about where I would put the betting line. So, Corey, you think it's going to change? Because I saw the latest polls come out today said 46 percent uh, in favor of leaving and 44 remain. Uh, now, again, it's early and, um, you know, the vote's not till the 23rd. But I hadn't I hadn't been checking Patty Power or Ladbrokes. Yeah, I think the betting line is a better uh, leading indicator than polls of public attitudes. And I, maybe we should just say for any of our listeners who, who aren't up on either their breakfast cereals or their foreign policy cool abbreviations that what Brexit means, Brexit would stand for the potential British exit from the European Union, which the Brits are going to be voting on shortly. So explain for those readers what the rationale for Britain leaving uh, the EU would be. Well, the, the British have never been entirely comfortable as part of Europe in general, culturally speaking or politically speaking. Uh, they've always been the, the unwilling skeptics within the European Union. They joined late. They asked for special concessions. They didn't want to give up their own currency, for instance, or their own ability to have greater border controls. Um, they have been part of the European Union, and since this is the argument for why exit, um, I think it's it's more cultural than anything else. It's a combination of just the same old British discomfort with uh, giving up any degree of sovereignty with more specifically, I think, the, the anxieties, uh, culture and economic anxieties, and to some extent security anxieties caused by the influx of immigrants into Britain, uh, since obviously part of the EU agreement is uh, uh, free flow uh, between national borders within the EU. And they've seen both an influx uh, of uh, migrants coming from outside the EU and at the same time a lot of uh, relatively less well-educated and lower-wage workers coming from uh, Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just caused a lot of cultural discomfort. So that's my analysis. And, and, and I think that obviously uh, – 
you know, I, I think British exit from the European Union would be a very bad idea for Britain as well as for the European Union. Um, so I don't know whether Corey or someone else wants to wants to offer other reasons that uh, Britain might nonetheless decide to exit. Although I, I although I should say I'm inclined to think that probably once again Britain at the last minute will will decide not to leave. Corey. Uh, so. Uh, I should probably confess that I am on the board of a think tank called the Center for European Reform, a London-based pro-European think tank um, that is nonetheless quite excoriating about what the EU does badly. But, but in general, I, I always think Rosa's right. And, <laughs> and I See, this is bi bipartisanship at its finest, right here in the foreign policy studio. Wait, wait a second. This but is I the same. Think. This is the same Rosa Brooks that said Donald Trump's foreign policy was okay. That's what you're. <laughs> well, I didn't say it was okay. I said it was coherent. It goes both ways, right? <laughs> okay. Even saying Donald Trump is coherent, I think, is a leap. But so, so, but I would. I would, for our listeners, just outline the case against it that people are making. That, that is that the European Union is uh, too unaccountable to British uh, voters and taxpayers, that they are anxious about a big influx, especially of internal movement of labor. Uh, you know, the Polish plumber is now canonical in British... Uh, politics for something that has been very good for the British economy and for British consumers, but that has made Britons very uncomfortable <laughs> about not being in control of their fate and fortune. And David Cameron has gotten himself so wrapped around the axle by, by hesitating to make the case in favor over the last several years. Uh, but then promising wildly implausible restrictions on immigration that have only made his government look less able uh, to, to argue the case that Britain can have control of its borders, control of its economy, and a vibrant city of London financial center, despite the EU. Ben, you like, you know, professionally read the newspaper every day, uh, <laughs> which it's our pleasure to pay you to do. Um, it's a good life. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good life. It's just a cup of coffee, newspaper. This is all just kind of media BS, right? I mean, it's not going to happen. This is crazy talk, right? I, I don't know. I think that there is, as Rosa said, there's a strong cultural element here that Britain, you know, is an island apart, uh, and there is a strong reflexive attitude that they don't want to be told. Uh, by this supranational authority in Brussels what to do. Um, Britain has the least regulation of all the countries in the EU, and I think there's concerns there from the city of London and the financial centers that they, that, uh, they want to maintain that independence. Um, and I think there's also something probably simpler here, that a no vote is an easier vote. You know, it is a reflexive impulse to say that we are different. We, you know... We want to maintain our Britishness. We see that same impulse here in this U.S. election right now. That said, you're you know I I you're saying Donald Trump is a no vote. Donald Trump, you know, the isolationist, exceptionalist argument is not unique to America, and I think that that it resonates strongly in Britain. This but is I, the kind of this is the kind of the we want off the planet Earth. 
movement. <laughs> yeah, the- no, no, but I think Ben is absolutely right. I mean, it's the same set of cultural unease of, oh, wow, foreigners are coming. I walk down the street and people are talking a language I don't even understand right here in my own country. I don't like this. I feel uncomfortable. I feel scared. And and the impulse is, you know, here it becomes, although for Donald Trump, there it becomes, hell, let's get out of the EU. And 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 I think in both cases, notwithstanding my my previous half-hearted defense of Donald Trump for moderate coherency deep underneath the contradictions in his foreign policy, you know, I think in both cases, it would be a really bad idea. It would be really self-destructive that Corey is right, of course, that the EU is all messed up in all kinds of ways in the same way that every government is all messed up in all kinds of ways and there are all kinds of reforms that there should be and so forth. And yet at the very same time, I think it is it is really pretty unequivocally clear that the economy of the United Kingdom has benefited enormously from EU membership and that leaving the EU would have a really, really destructive impact on both the economy of the UK itself as well as on the other EU countries. I mean, the OEC today estimated that that within 15 years, uh, the average British household could pay a tax of roughly 5,000 pounds per year as a sort of, not an an actual tax, but as a penalty for leaving the EU. Um, You know, Britain won't have the same, Britain will have to negotiate its own access to European markets once they leave the EU. And that's, that's a question. You know, the other part of it, David, that scares me is that there's no strong – the you know, the strongest sort of advocate for staying in is David Cameron, who's exceptionally weak in his <laughs> own party. You know, most of the Tory backbenchers are in the Leave camp. You've got, you know, strong – you know, Nigel Farage, who's the head of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, who's a sort of a political outlier but a very strong firebrand force, is making a very strong campaign to leave – uh, and, you know, you've got Labour saying we're going to stay in, but Jeremy Corbyn is, uh, you know, so far on the left wing that I, I don't know to the extent to which he actually speaks for the majority of British people. The one thing I think that might sort of resonate, you know, on behalf of the Remain camp for, you know, the people and for the Britons that want to stay is that there's a really – I think there's a pretty high likelihood that they might lose Scotland. Now, the Scots voted just squeaked by to stay part of the UK uh, last year. Contingent upon that was that the Scots want to stay part of the EU. Their economy, there was some oil up in Aberdeen in the north, but that, you know, as oil prices have come down, that economy has been decimated. They need the EU. And if Britain votes to leave, Scotland's going to want to stay, and there will be another referendum, and that, uh, I think, Scotland will leave. So, you know, as Rosa was saying, there is a real threat to, you know, the united part of the United Kingdom if the vote goes, and that may be a driving impulse. Um, I'm going to still stick with my belief here that this is a lot of heavy breathing, and at the end of the day, Britain's going to stay in. But let's go to the broader issue. Clearly, there are problems in the EU. If you were queen or whatever high role you might play within the EU, where, where would you start to fix it? Where I would start to fix it is by giving better connectivity between actual people and the institutions and the policies. You know, the, the EU has done an even worse job than, than the Republican political establishment in connecting itself to the people it purports to represent. So when the European Union, you know, bureaucracy does stuff like, 
you know, regulate the shape and size of olive oil bottles. That's the kind of thing that just infuriates people, that they're not addressing the big problems that, that people want government to, uh, to focus its attention on, but it, it spends its time on trifling irritations uh, for people. And I think the signs were clear as early as the French referendum several years ago uh, that people are exasperated with believing government is slipping out of their ability to control. And so showing that the, the institutions will hold themselves accountable is a really important part of reestablishing confidence by the public, both that the institutions do reflect them and that the institutions get the message that, that people are worried about government slipping out of their ability to control. So that's where I'd start. Uh, Rosa, do you have any further suggestions? Nope. Wow. <laughs> um, so let me just give you an example, David, of a place where I think that you missed an enormous opportunity 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago, right? We're at the zenith of European um, smugness about the post-Cold War order, right? This is the point in time at which the prime minister of Luxembourg can say during the wars in the Balkans that there's no need for America's help because this is the hour of Europe, not the United States, right? What the European Union has done, especially in defense and foreign policy, is too often demanded credit in the present for activities that they, that they aspire to conduct in the future. And instead of, for example, you know, touting a European army, which, which, would make, which would complicate NATO's defense planning and America's sense of obligation, why didn't the European Union focus on creating a European Coast Guard? which could actually help with uh, immigration management, could make the southern and northern countries have something in common in defense policy. They didn't do it. They are only now this year beginning to take small steps towards it, and that's as a result of the avalanche of immigration from North Africa and the Middle East. Okay, well, let, me, let me dive back in. I'm going to ask a question to Rosa and Ben that will build on this. We will soon have a new president in the United States, what should she do with regard to the EU? I don't know that there is a whole lot that she can do that is different from what President Obama has been trying to do, which is, you know, it, it, it's tricky, obviously. Um, you know, the EU overlaps with NATO, but is not the same as NATO. That that complicates things. Um, the the We are not able, obviously, to tell them what to do. We can make suggestions, but if we make them heavy-handedly, then they just tell us to buzz off, um, as President Obama just experienced in his own speech in the UK um, recently. Um, Yeah, so I don't don't think there's necessarily any great change to what the next president ought to be doing other than continuing to, on the sidelines, be saying, hey— you know, it is we regard it as both being in your your interest and in our interest and in the world's interest for there to be a strong, robust, unified Europe. And that includes making some of the kinds of reforms that Corey is talking about. But it does not include letting the whole system fragment and fall apart. And we're very worried about that. And I, I think we I think we've been we're saying that now and we need to keep saying it and we, we, we will keep saying it. 
I don't disagree. I think that, you know, if the president is a she, as you've sort of, you know, pitched forward with this question, uh, the policy will be quite similar. Um, you know, it will be if if Britain does leave the EU, I think there'll be an extreme amount of damage control that will be necessary. You know, the EU, it's not just the problem of Britain, too. You've got a, a number of – you've got the issue of Turkey – uh, and the refugee problem, which is intractable. And now Greece, much like they have in their debt crisis, is, is bearing the brunt of the burden there. They're trying to process 10,000 asylum applications per day with absolutely no capacity to do this. Um, and you have a bunch of, uh, you know, you still have the issue of Ukraine and Russian aggression. Uh, they are, the EU is of, you know, is certainly not of a singular mind as to what to do about that. And then you have the rise of some nativist right-wing parties in uh, Hungary, potentially in Austria, uh, with upcoming elections, uh, and some other places on the European fringe that are um, that are in need of American support and the right sort of language. So if it is Hillary, I think you'll see a, you know, a continuance of, of the Obama administration's policies. And, and I also think that whether it's Hillary or someone else, that, that the, the, the broader challenge of, of the next decade politically in both Europe and the United States is going to be sort of the management of simultaneously sort of resurgent nationalism and isolationism in many countries uh, with at the same time ongoing – just use the word crisis makes it sound like it's going to be time-bound and I think it won't be. It will be you know ongoing migration – driven by by conflict by climate change by economic needs and that's that that's and the two drive each other uh, and they're not going to go away and figuring out how to to manage these complex cross-border problems of large population flows at at a moment where it, it causes a lot of anxiety understandably within the countries that are experiencing an influx of migration you know that that's going to be the big challenge for both the U.S. and Europe to sort of figure out how do we do that without without sort of reverting to, you know, isolationist nationalist nastiness. Is there a way to manage these two things? I would add one more element into Rosa's very good analysis, which is the ongoing crisis of the sustainability of the social welfare states, absolutely societies. Yeah. The yeah. Greek crisis isn't over. Uh, Europeans have a lot of vulnerabilities on the economic front that make even harder the social challenges that, that Rosa was just mentioning. Let me, um, let me correct all of you. Um, <laughs> Please do. Please. It's a, it's a, <laughs> let me start with Corey Swipe and social welfare states. There are some states in the EU that are going through fiscal problems some of those with the most developed social welfare systems, like those in Scandinavia, actually are not. Um, and so to characterize it as a problem of social welfare states is misleading in the extreme. Um, having said that, the broader issue of what is the next president of the United States focus on, uh, I think begins with TTIP and redoing the Atlantic Trading Alliance. You should probably say what TTIP is for our listeners. Oh, our listeners. Are you kidding? First of all, both of them. I know, there's, I know both is. of them are smarter than we are, but <laughs> yeah. just in case one of them's yeah, not paying attention. Just, <laughs> but this is the proposed transatlantic trade deal. But the, the, that is on the table. It's not going to progress in this administration. It will be an early priority in the next administration. And I think that is going to become the pivot for rethinking the Atlantic Alliance and, on a broader scale. 
new trade deal, rethinking NATO, because clearly NATO needs to be rethunk, um, uh, rethinking the political relationship, trying to restore um, uh, some of the openness to the political relationship that has been lost, uh, addressing some of the emerging challenges like Russia, uh, addressing some of the ongoing uh, challenges also like Turkey uh, and the influx of refugees. Those things are not going away. So, you know, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if for the next president of the United States, the EU is at the top of um, the foreign policy agenda in a way that it hasn't been for a decade or two. Which of you would like to start by saying I'm correct and you would apologize for your analysis? Well, I think you are probably right, David, that it maybe should be at the top of the agenda, but I have a feeling it won't be nevertheless. I mean, I think that and that's a separate issue that that's about the, you know, the amazing U.S. capacity to get fixated on on an urgent an, on an on an urgent but not necessarily critically important problem at the expense of the less urgent but more long term vitally important problem. So, but that's a different issue. I would disagree though. I, maybe I maybe I misread Corey, but I didn't read Corey as taking a swipe at the social welfare state in the abstract. I read her just as saying that you know when when you have a world with enormous inequities when within the EU itself you have nations that have that that have radically different uh, levels of wealth and you have free movement within the within the EU that it, it poses real challenges to a welfare state you know a welfare a, well, a system that works pretty well in a prosperous and relatively homogeneous country can be put under enormous strain when you have suddenly hundreds of thousands or millions of people coming in with quite different needs than the local population has. So, so I, and Corey, tell me if that's wrong, but I, I didn't read that as a, as a overall anti-welfare state comment, rather just a, an acknowledgement of the enormous challenges posed by the movement of populations. Corey already said she always agrees with you. Okay. <laughs> the, the I, I was not, in fact, challenging the social welfare state. I'm a, I'm a, happy participant in a social welfare state. But I think all of the advanced Western economies are struggling with figuring out how to make it sustainable at lower growth rates than, than we anticipated having and that we have had for the last 10 years. Within the European Union, you have the widely different levels of economic development, Romania versus, uh, versus Denmark, for example, and you also have the, the currency union that makes it very difficult for states to, to have the range of tools that they need to address short-term economic imbalances. So it's just going to be hard. There are lots of different models for doing it. We're all struggling to find models that feel politically and culturally comfortable to us to manage this problem. I do, however, disagree with you, David, on, on Europe rocketing to the top of the American agenda. Um, it, when I look at TTIP, it's easy for me to see all the advantages for us and our closest trading and investment partners to lock in the rules by which trade will be conducted between us, to have a high level of protection for workers, for environmental standards, for intellectual property protection. But what I see um, bogging down the negotiations in the transatlantic negotiations 
is what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, right? When, when people who are not Europeans or Americans look at us and see us bickering about the level of protection for workers, they think it's crazy that we can't come to an agreement on it. But the head of the European Parliament is grandstanding about the unsatisfactory nature of American protections and what a disaster this will be for Europe. And I really think it's going to be hard. And it's going to be even harder because of the anti-trade rhetoric in the American elections and from the European right. And I just want to chime in really quickly here. I mean, I think there's still the fundamental problem, you know, of the famous, perhaps apocryphal Kissinger quote, who do I call when I want to call Europe? You know, um, Angela Merkel has been the guiding force, uh, both morally and economically in Europe, but she's not going to be there that long. And I don't think the next president may have that strong back, uh, you know, at the heart of Europe as a, as a person that can guide the relationship. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we always see that America's great traditional allies, you know, democratic countries are in Europe. But I, I, I know I sort of tend to agree with Corey here that I don't see that rising to the top of the next agenda. I want to make the rebel bounce on this point, David, by, by saying that from a European perspective, the United States has been zero help on managing the problems of the, the refugee crisis, the financial crisis, right? Like Angela Merkel doesn't feel like we're a terrific partner. Um, and so we may look to ourselves as their, their natural port of resort on this stuff, but I have been surprised at how exasperated Europeans are with the United States during an administration that Europeans very much wanted to get elected. I just take the leading from behind business. Uh, the, the trash talk by President Obama of our European allies and the very stinginess of his assistance, even when he agrees with what they are trying to do, has, has called into question just how, how wonderful a partner we are. And that's even before we get to eavesdropping on Angela Merkel's cell phone. Well, I can't say that I... Uh want to argue with your thesis that the U.S. hasn't been a great partner. Uh, having said that, I just don't know how you deal with Russia, Turkey, refugees, Syria, the global economy, global trade, climate change, uh, or frankly, counterbalancing China uh, or counterbalancing the impulses of emerging countries in global economic discussions without a strong transatlantic partnership. And um, one of the reasons the transatlantic partnership has not been strong is that in the years since the end of the Cold War, it has been seen to wane in importance, when in fact, I think the opposite has been true. Uh, and furthermore, we have a global institutional structure that was created in the wake of the Second World War that is outmoded by design week, need of restructuring, uh, whether it's governance institutions like the UN or institutions like the WTO or uh, the uh, uh, anti-proliferation uh, 
regime or, or, or anything else. And I don't believe that there's any way to actually advance um, discussions on the revitalization of those institutions without the EU being at the top of the list. As far as Angela Merkel disappearing at some point, that's undoubtedly going to happen. But Germany is the leader in Europe, regardless of who the leader of Germany is. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. So that's my counterargument. You may each respond to that or say something else in European. <laughs> you know, uh, back when I was when I was a youth, uh, I actually enrolled for a year in a master's degree program in European politics at Oxford. Uh, and that's I did, fancy. I did very poorly, uh, and I disliked it. And and I switched at the end of the year to a master's degree program in social anthropology. And and that's that's pretty much tells you all I have to say on this subject. <laughs> um. Well, I it like does. soccer. <laughs> I mean, Oxford is also kind of rainy and bleak. Well, there were many, many problems. Yeah, exactly. Ben, I was just saying, you know, uh, I still watch uh, the Champions League. That's as much of you know of Europe as I need. Well, that's very progressive and open-minded, and I'm sure European listeners will be <laughs> uh, fascinated that this is. The I'll, I'll have you know that I have some euros in my wallet at this very, very moment, and I keep trying to use them in parking meters, and they never work. I am not going to let Ben and Rosa get away with suggesting that European influence in their life is token and marginal and voluntary. We take so much for granted about the commonality of European and American culture, interests, politics, um, that we don't even notice it around us. Um, but, but David, you're right. This relationship is integral to our ability to manage the very problems that we are most worried about. Um, and the similar trends in, in dysfunction in the politics of uh, the developed Western countries are, are something all of us are groping towards solutions on. And we're unlikely to be able to manage the big meta problems that our societies are interested in without cooperating very closely with each other. See, I was right all along. <laughs> everybody was right. We're all right, guys. We're, we're all right. And we're smart. And we're good looking. Yeah, everybody gets a trophy for participating. Everybody gets an A, just like in every school in America, where <laughs> A's are given to 50% of the students instead of 15%, like it was 50 years ago, um, which is why America's circling the drain. But that's a subject for another ER. Um, although not one anytime soon because I'm <laughs> kind of sick of it. Um, uh, but prior to concluding here, let me thanks, uh, offer thanks to Rosa and Corey and Ben for a lively conversation about a subject that most Americans never think about uh, because we're so narcissistic and because lemonade dropped and Beyonce may or may not be saying Becky with the good hair was Rachel Roy or Rita Ora, or somebody else, which is all way, way more important. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Of course not. I got you. You're so hip, David. You guys are losers. We are. Right, we know are it. Living proof. That's why we do this podcast, goddammit. Exactly. Because our two listeners nation. like us. Ben, thank you for joining us and adding that kind of aura of hipness. I'm with it. Yes, go on. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, no, he's yeah. Right, okay. 
I have my Good. finger on the pulse. Yeah, you really have your finger on it. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's very nice to have had this conversation, and we hope that everybody who has joined us for this conversation, plus a lot more other people, join us for some future conversation here on the ER. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.